And again, good afternoon from Maui, Hawaii. It's Michael Benner here. And this is the regular Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon if you're on the mainland or Point East. Still early in Maui. It's uh, 10 o'clock in Maui. So good morning from Maui. Good afternoon. And happy Mother's Day. This is the first of three special calls dedicated to some very, very basic philosophy. And that's the unity, the oneness, the singularity, or the wholeness of all that is spiritual is found truly in all religion, theology, and philosophy. A consensus we'll describe a bit today. And then also we'll touch on the duality and the Trinitarian nature. And of course, uh, since we're doing three, the oneness, the duality, and the threefold nature of all things, why not do it across three weeks? So there'll be a lot of overlap. I'm not going to confine myself to unity this week and duality next week and the Trinity the following week. There'll be some overlap, but the, that'll, that'll be the emphasis as we work our way into this really fundamental uh, philosophy. This This is missing in the political, uh, social, economic, certainly philosophical understanding that people have of things. As I mentioned here in my comments before the class began, the uh, tendency of people, especially when stressed or anxious, to go to this or that, to think in false dichotomies and uh, this black and white everything or nothing all differences are opposite kind of thinking, as you know, as many of you know, has been a pet peeve of mine uh, for many, many years as a broadcast journalist. The journalist that asked the question, well, are you in favor of this or opposed to it? Is this true or is this false? And often that's adequate or sufficient, but so when we get down to complicated issues like uh, you know, energy, for example, well, do you favor uh, continued use of oil or would you rather go nuclear? What do you want? Which is it, this or that, oil or nuclear? Wait a minute. There's a third option and a fourth possibility and a fifth alternative and a sixth way of looking at things and, and maybe even a way of blending all these these choices and options together. And yet, reality has a dual nature. A, in Taoism, it's the yin and the yang. I'm sure many of you have seen the symbol of Taoism, ancient Chinese philosophy, as conceived by a teacher named Lao Tzu, who lived uh, about the time of Socrates and Confucius, actually. There's a story that Lao Tzu and Confucius actually met each other once. Uh, about 500 B.C., sometime in that 5th century before the current era. But, uh, you know, the symbol, the circle with that sine wave that goes through it, and one side is black, the other side is white. Then there's a dot of each, a dot of the opposite in each. That's the way to say that. And sometimes it even rolls. It thins slowly. 
And that represents the duality, but not an exclusive duality. That's why there's the dot of the opposite in each, that in the pendulum swing of things, there's no point in the swing of the pendulum where it's not influenced by both sides. There's no extreme in the swing of that pendulum that is all one and none of the other. So duality is a reality. We have duality in sexuality, obviously, the yin and the yang of the male and the female. Uh, we have right and wrong. We have good and bad. We have winners and losers. To speak of just some of the basic dualities, but again, when we're stressed, the brain goes there. It, it's fight or flight. Um, it's you either stand your ground and fight, or you run like crazy to get out of here. And when we're stressed. We tend to live in a dual world, certainly those who wish to lead us by fear. And that's an important caveat, not all leaders, but those in government and corporation and media that seek to use fear to lead us or to control us, better said, are always going to go to that duality of things. And again, I want to emphasize that there's a certain truth to that. In the email that invited you here, I talked about the singularity, the oneness, the wholeness, even the word holy means whole, one thing, the, the unified nature of all things. And uh, that there is one God from the point of view of religious people or to a philosopher who doesn't use a word like God, uh, the absolute is often used, uh, the supreme source or the creative force or creator, if you will, is just one thing. You see that in um, in ancient Egyptian philosophy. Uh, again, the quotation from the Emerald Tablet that I used in the invitation, describing an above and a below. That which is above is a reflection of that which is below and vice versa. Um, heaven and earth. Uh, there's a vertical duality. God and and man, the creator and its creation, populated by creatures. And uh, so the rubric goes on, as below, so it is above, as above, so it is below, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. That's the way the ancient Egyptians referred to God as the one thing, as if there is no thing that is not part of the one thing. And of course, uh, in Deuteronomy, in the Hebrew Bible, which Christians call the Old Testament, uh, the Lord our God is one God. And as I pointed out, even so-called polytheistic religions like Hinduism, where there's dozens, uh, scores, hundreds of gods, there still is a sense of uh, an inclusive wholeness, a, a oneness. In Hinduism it's called Brahman, and um, that that's the unified nature of all that exists, whether it exists above the physical world in the spiritual realms, or whether it exists in the physical world, it is unalienable. Remember our Constitution? Unalienable rights cannot be alienated, cannot be separated from its source, even though it's 
down here in physical form. So there's the oneness, there's the duality. The threefold nature is where we take dualism and duality, the yin and yang, to polarities. That's another aspect of duality we need to talk about at some point, the idea of a magnetic north pole and a magnetic south pole that, at first blush, might seem to be opposites, but in fact are part of one bar magnet or part of one magnetic field. Even the planet Earth is one planet, but it has two poles. It has a magnetic north and a magnetic south. Interesting, <laughs> there is some research uh, done in uh, geology by you know very hardcore empirical scientists that tends to confirm that the polarity of the Earth has flipped a couple of times and created some rather catastrophic changes, but it never went away. The North Pole became the South Pole, <laughs> and the South Pole became the North, but the polarity of the Earth never went away. It, it has its electric or electronic aspect, its energy aspect, and energy has to have polarity. Energy has to have a vibration, a high point and a low point, that it vibrates back and forth between, and spirit is energy. So spirit always has its polarities. But here's where we get into the threefold nature of things, and then I'll tie it into the Trinity for you as sort of an introductory overview here. The bar magnet, so to speak, whether it's an earth or a bar magnet you played with in science class, has not only a north pole and a south pole, it also has a magnetic field. The magnetic field is the middle. And it stands as number two, so to speak. So you would see the North Pole as number one, the father aspect of things. The magnetic field is the middle. This would be the sun, right? The sun of the poles of north and south, magnetic north and south. And then, of course, the South Pole, which would be the complement of the mother. If the North Pole is Father Spirit, then the South Pole corresponds to Mother Matter. Happy Mother's Day. And it does matter. Even the word for matter is mater, which is Latin for mother. That's why we tend to think of God as a male, the father aspect, and matter as the female, mother nature, mater, madre. Uh, the material world is the mother, for uh, the material world is receptive to the causative nature of the North Pole. Playing with this idea of a, of a bar magnet and its vertical axis, its vertical alignment between God and man, the creator and its creation, heaven and earth, uh, spirit and matter, uh, is, is very enriching, especially when you go beyond the duality of it into the threefold nature by including the heart and soul of that vertical alignment, the heart and soul of that bar magnet, which is the magnetic field or the so-called sun. 
you see. This is the the magnetic field would be the offspring, the progeny, the 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 uh, the result of the interface, the reaction of the North Pole and the South Pole. And of course, none of the elements of that threefold nature of the biomagnet could exist without the other. And so, in a sense, here, before humanity understood anything about magnetism, much less its relationship to electricity and energy, we have ancient mystics, Egyptian, Jewish, Muslim, the Sufis, uh, Eastern philosophy, the Hindus, and to an even greater extent, I think, Buddhism in the South and in China, Taoism, um, at about the same time, and certainly shamanism from all over the world. The uh, indigenous peoples had their medicine men and their medicine women who understood all three of these things are true, that essentially we're working with one thing. It has its dual aspects. It's above and it's below, but it also has a center, everything that exists has to have a middle, right? If I hand you a ruler, it's 12 inches long, but at, at 6 inches, there's a heart and a soul. And actually, if you think of that ruler, again, as being a bar magnet, the middle is, is not just on the 50-yard line. The center is not the middle. It's not confined to the precise center. The magnetic field includes the whole a bar magnet. It even extends beyond the North Pole and beyond the South Pole. If, if you've ever seen a picture of the lines of magnetic flux or the magnetic field around a bar magnet or, or any conductor like a wire that carries electrical current, there's always a magnetic field around it. That's the center of the Trinity, the center of things. And this is what Christ tried to explain. Actually, he did a very good job of explaining, but it's been overlooked. The uh, not not that our understanding of Christ would have to be limited to this, but we're going to talk a, uh, a little bit next week and probably a great deal the week after of the I'll say the Trinity that is spirit, consciousness, and matter. Uh, one way of talking about the threefold nature of spirit above and matter below, the father and the mother, as I said, is um, to talk about the son in the middle, the S-O-N in the middle, as being the consciousness aspect between spirit and matter is consciousness, and this is a very important trinity. By the way, some of you are going to find this much more intriguing than others. Some of you are going to be absolutely fascinated by this, and it's going to open up an area of your life, like like filling in the blanks and, and adding the, miss, the missing pieces, and it's all just going to tumble right into uh, a very complete understanding for you. And if you feel that you're one of those people and you want uh, to look uh, deeper into the idea of the Trinitarian or threefold nature of all things, uh, check out my website. Go to either michaelbenner.com or theagelesswisdom.com and click on the homepage to go inside. 
then look at all the navigation links on the left and choose the one that says Wisdom Nuggets. And if you go in there, you'll see among the articles posted an article on the one, an article on the dual nature of reality, and an article on the Trinitarian or threefold nature, the triune nature of things. And uh, if you click that third one, the triune nature, the Trinity, it'll open up a grid of about 45 or 50 variations of the Trinity. And we'll get to that, as I say, two weeks from today. We'll talk more specifically about that. But everywhere you look, uh, there's a threefold nature. You know, whether it's uh, the fact that uh, uh, time itself has a beginning and a middle and an end, or a past, a present, and a future. Uh, space has three dimensions, height, width, and depth. A three-legged stool cannot rock. A three-legged stool that forms a triangle at its base is always stable, no matter how long the legs are. A stool with one or two legs, of course, is inherently unstable, and a stool or a chair that has four or even more legs, they all have to be exactly the same length in order for it not to rock or tip. But a three-legged stool, it doesn't matter. Um, the ancients in Africa and elsewhere, the famous three-legged stool, it's, it's famous because of this tendency. And, and again, you may even remember reading about Pythagoras. And in high school, you learned the Pythagorean theorem about uh, a right-angle triangle. And the square of the, the two sides equals the sum. Uh, the sum of the square of the two sides equals the, the uh, square of the uh, the hypotenuse, the side that's opposite the right triangle. Again, that just tripped up uh, uh, so many of the ancients who were trying to decode the world and understand the nature of space. And so the triangle, again, is evidence of the power of three or the intrigue of how complete the number three really is. So uh, in, in, certainly in mysticism, uh, there is a meaning to the four. It's a square. And the five is a pentagon in two dimensions and so on and so forth. Uh, numerologists, I suppose, could teach you about uh, that. But we're just looking at the first three because both time and space are threefold. Again, I told you you could use the link in the email you received that brought you here to visit the site before, during, or after today's class. Well, there, <laughs> there's another trinity for you, beginning, middle, and end, and uh, height, width, and depth, the, the, the past, present, and the future. These are, in space and time, pretty hard to ignore. Uh, a lot of folks never think about it. Imagine living your whole life and never realizing that the material world, in terms of being a space-time continuum, is defined by the threeness of it, the three dimensions of space and the three aspects of time. Even a good joke is built on three, uh, you know, the setup, the repetition, and the punchline. You know, the farmer has three beautiful daughters, or the priest, the rabbi, and the Protestant go into a bar, you know, <laughs> all of that stuff, the threeness of things 
the duality of things. Hey, it's either this or that, right or wrong, good or bad, and then the oneness of things. This is our uh, our topic for today, because it is, again, just so central to the Mystery School. I want to uh, remind you guys at this point of the opportunity that you have if you're listening live on the web right now to put a question or a comment at the bottom of the page, even if it's just your first name and in the city that you're calling from, and uh, a little message that says hi, and then I know you're out there. I appreciate that, but I'd love to have your questions so that I can, in a few minutes, address some of them. It's just about We're just about 21 minutes into the event here, and I'd like to do that in a little while. So calling your attention, just type in what you... Uh, well, again, a first name in a city in the box there, and then uh, your your question or your comment, if you will. Okay, uh, having done that overview, then let's talk today about the oneness of all things, the one God. Again, the ancient Egyptians, so-called Hermetic alchemy, the philosophy of of the old Egyptians, uh, there was a duality, an above and a below, as expressed in the second rubric of their revered emerald tablet, written, it is said, by Hermes, who, if you uh, are familiar with the Roman pantheon, is called Mercury, the FTD guy. Big day for FTD today. So, <laughs> Mercury in the Roman pantheon of gods, or Hermes, in the Greek pantheon, was thought to be a real person, or perhaps even a series of teachers. Um, sometimes he's called Toth, T-H-O-T-H, and uh, sometimes the Atlantean. His full name was Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Trismegistus meaning three times great. Now, isn't that interesting? Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Again, although he is a mythical god in the Roman and Greek pantheon, was thought to be a real person and maybe even a series of, of teachers, sometimes also called not only Toth but the Atlantean, suggesting that these teachings go back to prehistory and ancient Atlantis, Atlantis, which even uh, Plato wrote about the existence of Atlantis as he knew about it 2,500 years ago. So here we have, in ancient Egyptian philosophy, a reference to the one thing, having an above nature and a below nature, written by a guy who has three times great in his last name. Get it? Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. This is so fundamental to Egyptian philosophy, which had such an impact on uh, Judaism and Christianity and uh, Islam as well, that it's amazing that we only know of Hermes and Mercury as mythological gods. But the ancient Egyptians referred to that which is most supreme as the one thing. Uh, I've already referenced the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as Christians call it, uh, the one God. And, of course, Christ said the same thing. And I mentioned early in the call today that uh, even polytheistic religions 
for example, paganism, uh, pantheism, so-called uh, Hinduism is practiced even today, may have many gods, but there still is a sense of an inclusive Brahman in Hinduism, it would be called Brahman. So God is the one life, that would be the pagan or the pantheon view, the one thing, the one life, the one Lord, the one God. But even in its oneness, we have a problem. The problem is that the word one can be inclusive or exclusive. If you were taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. And if you're not taking notes, that's fine. But I want you to reflect upon this contradiction. You could call it a, du a, a primary duality in the nature of oneness. Is it a separative one, which in language we would say, is it this one or that one? Or even, is it this one and that one? Did you want me to bring them both? That's still a separative, this one or that one. But there's also a unitive sense to the one, to the wholeness of things, the whole one. I want the, I don't want a piece of the pie, I want the whole thing. Give me, and I mentioned before, uh, this is where the word holy comes from. H-O-L-Y, you might think of as W-H-O-L-E. Holy is whole. It's the entire thing. All right. I want that one, the whole one, <laughs> the big one. I want it all. You see. So, even a word like one, as simple as it may sound, is complicated by its separative and its unitive nature. And the problem that we have in philosophy and, and even more so in religion, let's just take the so-called monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the so-called the, the Muslims. The one God in each of those monotheistic religions is not the God of the other religions. They have different names. The Muslim, of course, God is Allah. The Jew says, oh, no, 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 no. God is Elohim, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. And uh, uh, the Christian says, oh, no, no, no. He may borrow, the Christian may borrow from the Old Testament, the so-called Hebrew Bible, or so-called Old Testament. Let me get it right. <laughs> the so-called Old Testament, which is indeed the Hebrew Bible and its many books, and say there is but one God. But then you have the Son, you see. And Christians, most Christians certainly, believe that the Son is the equivalent of the Father and that there really is no difference but ask him to explain then why one is the son of the other. And why would Christ teach people to pray to the Father and say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but here I am telling you to pray to the Father if there was no distinction between Father and Son. 
So it's difficult for people, and, and most people just don't go there, but a real philosopher, somebody that loves the the challenge of contradiction, who just embraces paradox. And by the way, that's what you are if you love paradox and contradiction. If you like to confuse yourself, <laughs> just to create an opportunity for more insight, you are a real seeker of truth, and that's all a philosopher is, is a person who is looking for the truth and not too easily convinced that he or she has found it. So here's our, our first problem in looking at the oneness of things. There is but one God, but my God is not your God, and your God is not my God, and my God's real, and your God is a fantasy. Well, okay, that's only part of the problem. Further, there can be, in the concept of inclusion, the inclusive nature of God, and many Christians do not believe this, by the way. You know, John McCain has aligned himself with this Pastor Hagee, and uh, I've recently looking at Hagee and why would McCain align with him and what is he about I heard him go on and on about how God is not inclusive and does not love but hates Jehovah's Witnesses talk about God hating sin love the sinner hate the sin you know projecting a human emotion on that which is most divine the wrath of God the vengeance of the Old Testament God as a, as maybe not opposed to, but certainly contrasted against the more loving and merciful God of the uh, of the Christian point of view, and yet Christians say, "Oh yeah, it's all one God. It's just, you know, what did Christ say? Come not to change, but to fulfill. It's just a better understanding." The Jews go, "Wait a minute, we we like our God just fine," and the Muslims over here saying, "You guys are all crazy. God is Allah," you know. But here's here's another problem that we have to deal with any time we use the number one, which is, is it, in fact, an inclusive one or a separate one? And for most religious people, God is separated and remote. Again, note-takers write down separate and remote. God is very, very far away. So far away that even the Hubble telescope cannot see a man on a cloud or in a gilded throne on a chair way up high at the edge of the universe. And you say, Michael, are you kidding? Nobody really thinks in the Christian tradition or Jewish tradition, nobody really thinks God is a man in the sky. That's just a symbol. Well, I got news for you. A lot of people really do believe that God is a man in the sky. Indeed, would suggest to you, if you think of God as an energy or a force, that you're a pagan or, or a pantheist. And again, worthy of going to hell and being tortured, and you're not allowed to think outside the box. Um, again, the idea, if you're a Christian, that Christ is God, that there's no difference between the Son and the Father, then if Christ is standing in front of you, healing a leper next to him, then Christ is God, but the leper is not. And yet Christ said, you're all children, these things I do. You know, is Christ doing the healing, or is he touching the Christos, 
or the god in the leper or the lame person or the blind man that's being healed? Is the divinity coming through Jesus as healer to the person being healed, or is Christ teaching us here, these things I do, you can do and more, to to call upon the divinity in all things, you see? And these are questions that really begin with, do I think of God as a man, as a being, on a cloud or on a throne in, in the sky, or do I realize just how limiting and even blasphemous, isn't that idolatry? Isn't that idolatry? You have to consider the possibility that, that it may be. And instead, consider that maybe the pantheists, so-called, the pagans, the pre-Christians, the people that saw God in all things, in the wind, in the rain, in nature. I, I, I can tell you, the, living in Maui, the ancient Hawaiians were very clear. Uh, pagans, they, they see God in the wind, and the waves, and the weather, and... and uh, how fertile the land is, and, and uh, the, of course they have, as pagans, many other spirits. You know, Pele, the, for example, the, the the spirit of the volcano, or a demigod like Maui. This island is named for a for a god, a lesser god. But again, the most fundamental question here, make no mistake about it, is: Are we talking about a god that is separate and remote? or a God that is everywhere equally present. And if you wrote down separate and remote, you might want to write down as an alternative, everywhere equally present. All right. So as the Sufi mystic would say, God is closer than your breath. God is closer than your breath. All right. Or others might say, God is in your heart. God is in your ability to love, in your capacity to love. For, again, pulling on Christianity, uh, John said very clearly, God is love. Didn't say God loves you, didn't say Jesus loves you, uh, didn't talk about anything spiritual and you loving somebody else. Uh, said God is that love. That's <laughs> very clear. And yet by the time you're a preacher or minister, or, or a priest or rabbi gets around to that. Well, the rabbi may not say it unless he's really reformed. Uh, it comes down to God loves you. Well, there's a difference I would propose between God is love and God loves you. And the idea that love is everywhere equally present is something that is central to philosophy and uh, the unifying nature of mysticism. That's really love as the glue that touches all things and binds all things. In this decision, you have this koan or riddle about how could the one, the totality of things, create all these many forms, separate and uh, diverse, uh, no two snowflakes even are alike, every creature different, every ant different from every other ant, you know, every butterfly uh, different from every other butterfly, even though the species of butterfly may look similar somehow, and they're all unique. Every rose distinct and somehow different from every other rose, and yet they're all roses, even on the same bush. 
and they wilt and they die, and the bush brings more, even more roses. And, and, and this miracle that is, and, and paradox, maybe that's even a better word than miracle, the paradox of the one and the many, the paradox of unity and diversity. How could that be accomplished without a middle element that is love? Without a middle, a heart and a soul, that's what those words mean. Heart and soul both mean middle or center. And so the one creates the many without being diminished or even affected. The creator creates its diverse creation because of the magic of love, which is this middle element that is the glue everywhere equally present, the, the cohesive magnetic field around the bar magnet, that because of its magnetism and because of its cohesive nature, you don't have to hold on to love. It's, it's just sort of sticky. It's attractive and sticky. It's cohesive. And uh, so in philosophy, this is the concept by which the one creates the many without being used up or spent or diminished or, as I said before, even uh, affected. So the first thing that we have to discern today as we talk about the singularity, the wholeness, the holy, the universe, the oneness, of God is are we talking about a separate God that stands outside of its creation or a creation, a universe, a material universe that is unified spiritually, that is that is an expression, though diverse, of one particular thing. In which case everything is sacred. You know, there's an island out here in the Sandwich Islands in Hawaii called Ko'olave. And if you've been to Maui, uh, on the South Shore, you probably saw Ko'olave in the distance over by Lahaina. Lahaina is the Pineapple Island, and they're just starting to build some resorts there now. Ko'olave, nobody goes to Ko'olave for, although it recently was stopped, uh, when I started coming to Hawaii 25 years ago, that was the bombing island. That was where the military dropped bombs all day long. They would bomb Ko'olave, practice bombing in the 60s and 70s and even the early 80s when I started coming here. They were bombing Ko'olave. You could go to the beach on the south shore of Maui and hear them exploding Ko'olave. Well, you know, the tourists didn't think much of it. They said, well, obviously there's nothing over there but a big old rock, just a stupid old volcano and so what? They're dropping bombs on it. But again, to the ancient Hawaiians, to the Hawaiian people who were pulling on this this timeless philosophy of God in all things, God cannot be separated from its creation. Well, this is a crime. You're dropping a bomb on a sacred part of God. For there is nothing that is not a sacred part of the one thing or the one life. How could you drop a bomb? And, and the Western thinker, the, the Judeo-Christian person might say, what are you talking about? There's no people over there, you see. So the problem we have 
with a alienated or separated one, even if we agree there is but one God, even if we agree there is but one ultimate creative spiritual source of all things, whatever its name, Allah, Elohim, you know, God, whatever term you use, even if we say, well, the terms don't matter, we'll agree that there's just one God, the question remains, is it remote and separate, or is it everywhere equally present? And that's really the key dilemma today as we talk about the oneness of all things. Again, next week we'll talk about duality. We'll talk about the oneness and the Trinitarian nature also, but we'll focus on duality, and then two weeks from today, in the third part of this little series, we'll talk more about the heart and soul of things and how all of this is accomplished. So one, two, three are topics for today, next week, and the week after that. So I think you know that my argument here has got to be that even if you think of God as one thing, we have to begin to reject uh, our grip, our holding on to the idea that that one thing is very far away. Because it takes the sacred out of the creation. And now the world is not sacred. And now it's okay, don't you see, if people starve. You know, there are food riots in the world right now. Your local, if you go to your local Costco, was it Costco or Walmart? Maybe it was Walmart. That just a couple of weeks ago put a limit on the amount of rice you can buy in the United States of America. Get used to it. Okay? There are food riots in the world, and we tolerate it because it's them, not us. The idea that there's nobody here called them, that it's just us, I've always thought that's ironic. Justice is justice. A sense of justice springs from the idea that it's just us. There is no them. Then how can we tolerate food riots? How can we suffer a foolish president who says you're either with us or against us, you're either with us or with the evildoers, that there is no middle ground and we allow ourselves to be led by somebody that is reducing all choices, all permutations, all combinations, all variations. The richness of the world reduced into a true or false exam. That ought to insult you. And it can only be accomplished if we begin to see God, or we continue to see God, or that which is divine, or supreme, or the ultimate source of all things, whatever the name, as separate and remote. If you begin to understand that there is no outside to God, then that changes everything, doesn't it? And that's something you have to begin to consider. You don't have to be a pagan or a pantheist or limited to Eastern as opposed to Western, look at our language even, as opposed to Western philosophy, to begin to think of a Jewish God or a Christian God or a Muslim God as inclusive. 
That would mean God doesn't hate. God is love. There is no hate. That means there is no you or me. It's just you and me. That means that if you're a spiritual person at all, and if you're not, why would you be on this call still? (laughs) You have to begin to work for that one world. It doesn't necessarily mean one government, okay, or a tyrannical government, or a corrupt government. We could have many diverse governments and many diverse economies, just like many restaurants that have different kinds of food and many customs and languages. Diversity is a beautiful thing, but we could still have a sense of we're all part of one thing, one planet. How about that? One solar system, one universe. That's redundant. One universe. The, the una means one, doesn't it? Unicycle has one wheel. One universe. With the sense of that which is supreme or sacred being everywhere equally present. That is inclusive. That is, nothing stands outside God. Okay? Not, and this is where it gets hard, not even evil. This is where it gets difficult. You know, I said something to a family member once about um, disease, as I recall. And I said, well, you know, there's everything works together for good. It says that in the Bible that, that my, my uh, family member believed in. I said, every, it says there, every, there's a... You know, every dark dark cloud has a a silver lining. Every curse is a blessing in disguise. So I'm sorry your friend has cancer, but maybe something good could come out of it. For all things are within God. And this family member freaked out and said, no, disease is not of God. So God's over here, the holy good stuff, but disease and illness, that's bad stuff. That's the realm of that which is evil or Satan, or all of that. So now you've created a one God and a one evil. You've created opposites. Part of the universe is good, and part of it is bad. Part of it is blessed and divine, and part of it is dark and evil. And that's the way Christianity and Judaism is often preached. But in order for you to conceive of that, you have to personify God as separate and remote and very, very far away, and hopefully he can hear my prayers. Whereas if you consider it's not the separative one, this one or that one, but a unitive one of totality, a holy wholeness, okay? The one thing, the one life, as the ancients have taught us, everywhere equally present, that even that which appears to be evil, could be brought into the light, from the shadow into the light. Do you see that shadow is a function of light? That you can't have shadow without light? Maybe you can't have good without evil, at least in the material world. Another duality. So the unity, the duality, and the Trinitarian nature are a theme for the next couple of weeks as well. Today we're talking primarily about the oneness. And this is the central dilemma that I want you guys uh, to begin to think about and deal with. 
Let me touch on some of these calls, and then we'll do a little visualization exercise, and we'll call it a day, and I'll let you guys have your Mother's Day again. I want to, if you came on late, I want to be sure and express uh, Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Richard in Laguna Hill says, Hi, Michael. Another trinity worth mentioning is the Native American Great Mystery, the Great Spirit, and all our relations. Pretty comprehensive. Uh, yes, and that's a beautiful one. Well, two weeks from today, I mean, we'll do it next week, too, as it did today, talk a little about the duality and the Trinity, but two weeks from today, we'll focus on the Trinity. Uh, Brian in Lancaster says, uh, uh, hi, hello, and howdy, Michael. That's my line. Uh, hope everybody's doing well out there. Just wanted to wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Brian. Now, I'll always let you know that uh tried a few times to speak to... Armando at KPFK, not sure if it did any good. Well, he goes on and says things that seem to be more intended for me than all of you about KPFK. Um, and goes on, keep up the good work, and I'll keep telling people about this uh, event, these webcasts. Thank you, Brian. I really, really appreciate that. And again, appeal to all of you to spread the good news that somebody who who is interested in comparative religion and philosophy uh, can, in a, a really respectful and reverent way, study all of these religions and all of these philosophies and all of these theologies without having to choose uh, one and uh, reject all the others. That would be another either-or, wouldn't it? And so uh, thank you for that. And, and uh, I do encourage all of you to, in the same way, let, let folks know about this, tell your friends. In Laguna, Richard says, I agree that people thinking of God as a man, uh, he says, I read in a karma and bhakti yoga book, if you think about it, you cannot imagine God as anything but a man. That's a very good sentence. Hear the first part of, of uh, what Richard is saying. If you think about it, because why? Thoughts are often pictures. You can think in words, but you often think in pictures. But words and pictures are both separate. This word is separate from the words before and after. Don't you see? And pictures are separate, too. Anyway, um, he goes on. So even the so-called religion of enlightenment has dogma about this God is man thing and uh, thanks for the Sufi God is closer than your own breath. My mother has been wondering where that came from. Uh, it's her mother's day present. Bless it. Well, that's nice. That's nice. Yes, God is everywhere equally present. Love is everywhere equally present. God is love. Love is God. You know, this sort of hinges on what we'll talk about in future weeks. But the idea of... Uh, even love as having levels or layers, at least two. Here's the duality of love. But if there's a two, there's got to be a three. If there's a three, there must be a four, and so on and so forth. Um, that love as an emotion, small l love, has its yin and its yang, has its ebb and its flow, has its passions and lusts, and ecstasies, it's eros, so to speak. But 
it also has its broken hearts. You know, what mother, since it's Mother's Day, hasn't had a child break her heart? Not that we did it deliberately, but it happens. And what lover hasn't had a broken heart? So love has a yin and a yang. It has a uh, an ability to bring together but also to tear asunder. And yet, could there be a higher level? Could there be a unitive, harmonious, and even unitive love that we capitalize that L? And that's spiritual love. And that is devoid of the, well, it can't be devoid of anything, can it? i got to watch my language. It doesn't have spiritual love, that ebb and flow. It doesn't have that broken heart. Uh, the love that Christ talked about, the love that uh, that uh, Rumi talks about, for example, in Sufism, is a love that we die to, but it's still blissful and ecstatic and uh, everywhere equally present. Spiritual love does not have the ebb and flow. It doesn't have the heartbreak and the sense of loss that emotional love has. So we're even going to have to talk at various points about this concept, that there is an emotional heart. But when that emotional heart is calm, there is still a feeling. There is still a magnetism. There is still a feeling that is present. It seems so subtle, yet is so incredibly powerful, that remains when the emotional love or the emotional turmoil is calm. This, again, is the walking on the water analogy. Christ walking, how did Christ walk on water? Water being emotions. Well, did he calm the emotion to make the fear of those in the boat go away, or did he make the fear go away and that calmed the waters? And is there a chicken and an egg in that argument? Is there a distinction between fear and loss, between fear and heartache? You see? And uh, could there be a love so pure that it is without fear? That's, that's one of the ways of interpreting the walk on water uh, parable. It's really a rich and, and beautiful parable. So, uh, all right, so there you go. So, again, to summarize, very quickly we'll do a visualization exercise and uh, and call it a day. And then we'll pick this up next week and the week after. We're talking about the oneness. The totality, the inclusive, the, the singular nature of the one God. Its tendency to be dualistic, both in the vertical sense, as above, so below, spirit, matter, God and mankind, heaven and earth. But then a horizontal duality, like the swing of the pendulum. The pendulum has a duality in that it's fixed at the top, but it swings at the bottom, so you have above and below. But you also have the horizontal duality of yin and yang, the polarities horizontally of this or that, the horizontal swing of the pendulum. This, by the way, is the pre-Christian cross, a vertical and a horizontal, the vertical being the polarity or the alignment between heaven and earth or God and man, this is the stairway to heaven or Jacob's ladder, the middle path that 
caduceus and all of that, but also a horizontal bar magnet, if you will, a, uh, a horizontal yin and a yang, the, the in-breath and the out-breath of life, the, uh, the, the polar nature, the comings and the goings, uh, the yin and the yang, the this and the that, which includes men and women and good and bad and right and wrong and Republicans and Democrats. Where did we ever get the idea that two political parties is freedom <laughs> from the dual nature of the way we think? Okay, People are afraid of a third choice or a fourth choice. It's too complicated. That's why they love right-wing talk radio. Everything, <laughs> everything is either good or bad. Left-wing radio, it's always, well, there could be another way of looking at it. Now, lots of folks don't like that. It scares them. They don't want to think. And then the Trinitarian nature we'll get to in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about a little next week, but this is really the capper. Uh, the, the fact that the one becomes the two and the two becomes the three. And there's something uh, very complete about the threeness of things. And both the vertical sense, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Mother. I think if on Mother's Day we call Holy Spirit Mother, uh, that explains a lot. And, of course, there's a Trinitarian nature in man, the mental, emotional, and physical self. So divinity has its threefold nature. Um, again, the uh, the king, the, the prince, and the queen in ancient Egyptian philosophy, Kether, Kachma, and Bana, which means the crown, the wisdom, and the understanding of God in Judaism, Kether, Kachma, and Bana. Again, most Jews don't know this, but the mystics, the Hasidics, for example, uh, they know about the tree, they know about the middle pillar, they know about the trinity in the Old Testament God. And uh, Hinduism, it's Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Uh, one of our uh, listeners, was it Brian, was just talking about, no, it was Richard and Laguna, talking about the Native American trinity and the threeness of things. It's just so incredibly rich and wonderful that we need to parse it. So I think the main lesson today about the oneness of things has to be your contemplation. I'm not telling you what to think or how to think. I'm, I'm giving you options that you might not have otherwise considered. That if you're an idea of the one thing, God, as a man on a cloud, if, if you give God a form, it's going to be separated. It's going to be remote. It's going to be very far away. And it's going to therefore excuse a whole lot of bad behavior, like war. Well, we're not killing good guys. We're just killing bad guys. Really? Really? Now, Harry Reid was on, uh, uh, the Senate Majority Leader was on, television the other day, what show was it, and he was talking about a meeting he had with Bush that scared him, terrified him, and the commentator, I think it may have been Chris Matthews in Hardball, said, well, what did Bush say to you? And Harry Reid, the, the, again, the leader of the Senate, Democratic majority leader, said, the president told me, we're getting them, we're killing them, we're getting them. And the interviewer said, what did he mean by that? And Reed said, 
bad guys. You know, Bush's view of the world is like a cowboy movie. There's guys with white hats and guys with black caps, and all you got to do is kill enough of them. Like if I could kill enough cockroaches, there wouldn't be any more cockroaches. This is this is this is insane. This is why we spray poison on our vegetables. You go out and make a beautiful garden and then spray poison on it to eliminate the bugs. And of course, it never works, and you end up poisoning yourself and the water and the, and the whole environment because of the madness of thinking that things, because they appear to be separate, really are separate, and we even do that with the most supreme sense of all that is. We separate it and make it very far away and very remote, and the consequences are that there are some parts of this world, like Ko'olave, that we can drop bombs on because nobody lives there, and that's not a sacred place. And even if it was, now we're dropping bombs on it. So, And you are not me, and I am holy, and God loves me, but your God has a different name, and you're separate, and you're... And so I'm going to kill you, you see. I mean, what an irony that so much war is caused by religion, promoted by people who claim to want to love the God because they think of their one God as separate and remote from its creation rather than everywhere equally present like a magnetic field that is everywhere, like a radio station that no matter how far away you drive, it never fades, it never diminishes, like the warmth of a fireplace, that no matter how far you back off, the warmth does not fade, it does not diminish, like light from any source, a light bulb or the sun that does not diminish no matter how far away you get the light remains as bright that's what we need to consider Dan Morrison does a song called love is everywhere love is equally present love is everywhere God is love God is everywhere closer than your own bra that's your lesson for the for the day today and then next week we'll talk a little more about the duality how the one creates the many and the polarity of the one and the many and uh, also the polarity on the horizontal of the yin and the yang, the ebb and the flow, the in-breath and the out-breath, the cyclic nature to all things there is a season. How about that? Ah. <laughs> and then the Trinitarian nature, the fact that every two has to have a center. And it's not limited to the 50-yard line. It's the whole magnetic field around that bar magnet. I sure hope this makes sense to you. It's not easy because you haven't heard anybody talk like this. Most of you, anyway. Some of you are very well studied at this and might even feel a little talked down to. I hope you'll tolerate that a little as uh, together we explore the mysteries of all cultures, all societies, and all religions, the ageless wisdom that permeates. There have been many Christian mystics and continue to be many Jewish mystics uh, the Kabbalists and, and uh, the uh, Christian mystics, the Rosicrucians and the Knights Templar and such. Uh, Sufis have, or the Muslims, Islam has its mystics, the, the Sufis as we mentioned, uh, the shamans, 
the Native Americans and other indigenous people had their medicine then and their and their medicine one and the pagans with the witches and the wizards. Beautiful traditions, not contrary to religion at all. The religion may be contrary to mysticism, but mysticism embraces religion, it embraces all things because of its very nature. And of course the Eastern philosophies, whether it's Chinese Taoism, uh, Buddhism, uh, uh, Hinduism, used to be called Brahmanism, all of these philosophies, religions, and theologies have this inclusive sense of a one God that is love. Be careful when people start saying God hates, God is separate, God is vengeful and wrathful, God loves this but not that, because in order to do that, they have to make God exclusive, elitist, arrogant. <laughs> Look, you know, just because the Bible says we're the image of this doesn't mean we can create it in our image and project all of our human qualities on that which is most divine. Again, that's blasphemy. That's idolatry. So, there you go. Let's see. Let's do a time check a little bit after the top of the hour. Let's, um, and I think I've responded to pretty much all the questions. Let's do a quick little visualization, and uh, then we'll call it a day. Hopefully, I know some of you may be listening to this uh, as a replay in the future. And some of you may be listening right now on a cell phone driving a car. Um, hopefully you have an earpiece. Uh, wherever you are, hopefully you're in a place, you have to use your own good judgment, where you can sit back and close your eyes. And if so, do that. If you're listening to a replay and you're not able to, then just pause it right here until another time when you can Sit back, take a nice, slow, deep breath, close your eyes. We'll just do this for a few minutes. It won't be long. Nice little brief exercise. And with eyes closed, take a couple of slow, deep breaths, consciously focusing on pulling air into the body and then exhaling just as slowly. Do it again. Nice, slow inhale. Hold as you peak and as you exhale, just as slowly. Create and sense a feeling of letting go throughout your own body. Maybe even a third, slow, deep breath. Pulling in strength and power as you inhale and then ah, feel the letting go. For a moment or two, put your attention gently on the bottom of your nose. As you allow your breathing to find a natural rhythm and a natural cadence. And imagine that you are fascinated by the body breathing itself all by itself, <laughs> freeing you to be a conscious, sentient being, freeing you to think about other things than having to breathe or, or beat your heart or maintain body temperature or blood pressure and what a wonderful thing to be able to 
allow the body to breathe itself and to do all of these other reactions by itself. And as we relax, the body gets better and better at restoring and rejuvenating and, and healing itself. Feel like butter on a warm day or a snowman melting in the springtime and just let yourself become a raggedy and doll. Let go of all that muscular tension. Feel balanced and centered. Just release all that muscular tension. Feeling physically still, relaxed. Feeling mentally as if your thoughts are beginning to quiet. Fewer distractions. At any time you are distracted, just let it go. See it fly away like a bird on a wire. Bring your attention back to the bottom of your nose. Just watch your breathing. And imagine yourself in a place, a beautiful place of perfect peace, a paradise. Where you find yourself in this paradise. A place of perfect peace, a place of ideal relaxation, like an Eden, beautiful garden, if you're walking through it. It may remind you of a, a favorite place in nature that you have been in your life, or it could be entirely from your imagination. But whether dreamed up or remembered, or a combination of the two. The feeling that you're making it up right now is exactly right. Dream it up. And imagine walking through this beautiful Eden, this paradise. And allow my voice to go with you as a guide. For in just a few moments, I will guide you back to the waking state. But imagine you come upon a little lake or a pond wherever you happen to be. And imagine sitting on the shore of this lake. And imagine that as you look out at this little lake or pond, the water is a little choppy in response to the wind. Maybe there's a little breeze that you can hear in the trees. And you see that breeze in a sense. Though the wind itself is quite invisible. You can see its effect upon the surface of the water. The wind itself remains unseen, but its effect below upon the water is apparent. The water is sort of chopped. Little waves, little wind waves, little white caps, maybe. And I'd like you to imagine every time you exhale, You don't have to exaggerate it. Just allow your body to breathe itself. But each time you find your body at the top of the cycle where it exhales, imagine breathing your breath out over those waters. And each time you do that, those choppy wind waves get a little smaller. And the wind itself though invisible and unseen, begins to slow. 
and diminish. And of course, the waves then as well, little by little, as you breathe into them, diminish. And as you sit upon the earth, on the shore beside this pond, this little lake, you can almost feel, indeed, you can feel your body becoming even more tranquil, especially your emotional nature in your heart or just below in your belly, where you tend to feel those feelings. You sense the tranquility that you're creating for yourself. And your emotions come calm. Now, choppy water you could not see into, even if you were in a little boat out in the middle of the pond, because the water's choppy, you could not see down into it. But now, whether you're still sitting on the seashore beside the pond, hardly a sea, on the shore of the pond, or whether you imagine yourself in a little boat out in the center of it, notice that as the water becomes calm, the surface as smooth as glass. You can now see into the water, which is your emotional nature. We always have to calm our feelings and become tranquil, physically still, mentally quiet, emotionally peaceful, to see into the emotions, to understand love and to understand that which seems not to be love seems not to be love for it has anxiety in it it sometimes hurts our so called negative feelings are best understood in the same place of peace and tranquility but not only do calm waters allow you to see into the emotional feeling, you can also see much more clearly now that which is reflected upon the surface of the water. For choppy water distorted that as well, but now that the water is smooth as glass, the pond or lake is like a mirror. Yes, you can see into it, see the little fish swimming down below, but you can also see reflected on the surface of the pond the sun and the outline of the trees around the little pond reflected in it you can see the blue sky and the clouds and that which stands above you you can see when you are calm that which is within emotionally and that which stands above spiritually Because it's Mother's Day, I'd like you to just pause and feel the love that each of us has for Mom. Initially, some of your thoughts may be negative or even carry hurt. For who has not hurt their mother and been hurt by their mother? All of us, each of us. 
But who does not love their mother? Everyone has love for the mother who brings us into this world, who carries us, who births us, and who nurtures us. And the mother aspect, the material world, mother nature, stands receptive to cause, and yet births and supports life. Honor not only your mother, honor Mother Earth, Gaia, honor the material world, matter, for it, though below, is a reflection of that which is above. It corresponds, the law of correspondence, that which is below, corresponds to that which is above. And that which is above corresponds to that which is below, the mother below. Matter, receptive to spirit, giving birth to those material vehicles, those instruments of the soul. Though appearing to be separate in the material world, a part of the one thing, the one life, through the magic power that is love, that is consciousness, that is peace and stillness. Love is effortless. Do nothing to love. Simply allow yourself on this day to honor your mother and her mother, the long lineage of women that have brought you into this world. For you are not here of your own volition. Not the you that sits with me now. Feel this love and tell yourself that you can effortlessly bring this sense of harmony, of connection, of peace, wisdom and understanding with you into the world. Bring this love with you as you reorient yourself to the sound of my voice. And prepare to open your eyes just a few moments from now. Being the love you wish to see in the world. Being now the peace that you wish to see in the world. Bringing with you the insight and the wisdom that you wish to bring to this world effortlessly, simply by forming the intention, remembering where you are right now, where you are now, though your eyes may still be closed. Feel the chair or the pillow or the floor supporting you. Inhale, take a nice big breath, and as you exhale, ah, open your eyes wide awake and alert, still bringing with you effortlessly the sense of love especially for mom on this Mother's Day. And Mater, Matter, Mother Earth, the material world, as a reflection of the one thing, the one life. And both things are true. All right? Thank you very much for being here. And I really, really appreciate you taking time out on this special day to join us. 
I have about 21 minutes after the hour, and uh, we won't always go this long, usually an hour to an hour 15, something like that, maybe sometimes even a little shorter, but i like to include the exercise for those of you who are able to stay. Again, I'd love to get an email from you, mb at michaelbenner.com. Let me know what you think of this and uh, any of your questions or comments after the fact. Maybe you don't want me to read them on the event. Email mb at michaelbenner.com. Visit the website, michaelbenner.com, and look at the call to action button down in the bottom corner of the website. When you get a chance, click on that button that says Wage Inner Peace Now. And that will take you to our Focus Passion website where you can subscribe to the premium podcast that Steve Snyder and I do. And a very special personal development. We don't get into the esoteric stuff too much. It's focused on real-world personal or persona development, which is essential to any kind of spiritual growth. can't have one without the other. And if you got a lot of spiritual books on yourself and you think of yourself as being on the path, uh, remember, you have to build the ego before you can let it go. Only the fully realized persona nature can be transcended. You've got to understand it before you can let it go. All right? Very important concept. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Happy Mother's Day once again. And uh, aloha from Hawaii, from Doreen and me. And join us next week. We'll send you an invitation. Hope you share it with your friends. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha. The moderator has disconnected. The call will now end. Come to the conferencing.